This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts, questions and conversations about faith, life, and culture. I work with a guy uh, by the name of Dan Darling. You may uh, listen to his program, read his read his stuff. It's really, really good stuff, and he's a great, brilliant guy that I really enjoy uh, working with, but his name is Darling, which means that there are all sorts of opportunities for people to sort of make jokes about that. Usually when he walks in the room, I quote uh, Conway Twitty, hello, darling, uh, when I see him first thing uh, in the morning, all sorts of iterations of that. I had a, a dream a few nights ago that there was something going on that was a Dan Darling dance party. And I remember waking up and thinking, what in the world is, is that about? And it wasn't until I got into the office that I realized, oh, it's Dan Darling's 40th birthday on that day. So maybe that was sort of uh, back there in my mind. And the way my unconscious interpreted that was a Dan Darling uh, dance party. He walked up to me that day and was we were talking about his, his birthday and he said, um, knowing that I had gone through the 40 boundary marker not too terribly long ago, he said, well, any words of counsel uh, on turning 40? And I said, uh, yeah, it's terrible. And it's, it's all uphill from here. The next, the next two years are, are going to be really, really bad, but it's going to get better. And he was like, well, thanks for the encouragement that you're giving to me. And I was, I was mostly joking kind of joking, but not really. Uh, and, and, and here's why I say that. I know that if we kind of looked at the demographics of who listens to this program, probably most of you are very young. There are others of you uh, who are older, probably not very many of you who are right now having to face that question of a potential midlife crisis, to use the word, the, 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 the phrase that's used often in our culture. But what I want to say to you is, you need to prepare right now, young man, young woman, college student, teenager, young married, 20-something, you need to prepare right now for your midlife crisis. And I want to say to those of you who are old her people, that you need to be preparing right now to help shepherd those younger than you through that uh, time of, of midlife. Now, the reason I say that is because there are some people who would suggest that there's really no such thing as a midlife crisis. Uh, this is a, a 20th century psychobabble uh, sort, of, sort of term, and there's some truth to that. 
there there are studies that can that can show you that the idea of a, a midlife crisis as a distinct definable thing is largely that. And so I would have said if you had asked me about you know many years ago if you'd said well are you going to be ever addressing the issue of a midlife crisis I probably would have laughed and said no because a midlife crisis isn't a real thing it's an excuse for immature guys to tool around in sports cars at at best and at worst to uh, split up their their marriages with affairs and and so forth and to blame it on midlife and and midlife crisis I still think that's true to some degree, but not entirely true. And so just in in the same way that there was a time when I would have um, made fun of the idea of, say, the inner child, because it's such a such a new agey sort of uh, trope that is used in some really, really bad ways, I don't make fun of that anymore. And the reason for that is because after all of these years in ministry, dealing with people on the outside and on the inside, one of the things I've learned is that childhood and adolescence really do keep showing up uh, in our lives constantly, and that really shouldn't surprise us as people who are who are Christians when uh, Jesus continually talks about becoming childlike and about the the importance of the little ones. We ought to we ought to understand that and have some respect for that. And I also would never dismiss the idea of the midlife crisis. Now in one sense, I would say don't worry about midlife crisis because there's a, an article in uh, the Atlantic uh, magazine not too long ago called The Real uh, Roots of the Midlife Crisis that, that is really fascinating. We'll, we'll link to it in the, in the show notes. But this is uh, being written here uh, by uh, Jonathan Rausch, and he says that when he turned, say, in his 30s, 40s, he said, the fog of disappointment and self-censure was there. But that sometime in his late 40s, early 50s, that fog started to lift. He says, at first, almost imperceptibly, then more distinctly. And by now, at 54, I feel as though I have emerged from a passage through something. And he goes on to say that uh, he he was told by an older man, a writer that he admired very much, the, the following. Midlife crisis begins sometimes in your 40s when you look at your life and you think, is this all? And it ends about 10 years later when you look at your life again and think, actually, this is pretty good. Now, there's research to back that up. There are studies that suggest that that what we face sort of in the middle of our lives is not so much a crisis for most people anyway, as a, a U-curve. If you just look at the, the sorts of attitudes that people have about their lives and about the, the, the world, there seems to be a trough somewhere in the, the late 30s, uh, early 40s. And then you'll, you'll notice that that starts to go up and up and up once you get uh, into the, the early 50s. And so as people age, actually, the sort of attitude that many people would assume, well, the older you get, the ornerier you get, or the, the sadder you get, is, is not true uh, for, for most people. And there are lots of reasons for that. 
I mean, there are, there are hormone levels that, that fluctuate and dip during that time. That takes some adjusting to. There's also sort of natural life uh, pressures. Many people at that time in their lives both have uh, small kids and aging parents. And many people are, are juggling, uh, rearing their children, uh, maintaining their careers, and caring for parents that either uh, have a lot of needs now or, or potentially would uh, at, at any point in, in the future. That's, that's a real thing. Beyond that, though, is there is a, a very real sense that at some point in the middle of our lives, we really do have a crisis. And, and I'm not using that in the, the jargony 20th century uh, sort of, of way, but, but more along the lines of what, uh, of what Dante said when he talks about being in the woods, in the middle of uh, life's journey, something that almost everybody who writes or reflects on a midlife crisis will, will refer to that opening there uh, of, of the inferno. Why is that a crisis? Well, I think it's a crisis because this uh, relatively new book uh, that I think is is insightful in many places, even though I, I disagree with with some of the the sociobiology uh, throughout it, called Selfie, talking about the the formation of the self in contemporary times. The the book starts out talking about of all things uh, suicide, and the author says that suicide can be predicted most often by levels of social perfectionism. My life has to meet these goals and my life has to be these certain things. And then there's a failure or a, a humiliation of that. And what, uh, what this author goes on to say is that every suicide is a failed story because he argues that people live by essentially one of two stories. People in the in the West tend to live by the, the story that he calls the Aristotelian story, uh, sort of the, the, the story that you would think of when you think of the old uh, Greek uh, epics. You're, you're on an adventure, you're conquering the obstacles that, that you have, and you're sort of moving onward and, and upward uh, through life. And eventually that story fails. You realize I, I haven't succeeded in all the ways that I, that I wanted to succeed. Or he says people live by the Confucian story, as he calls it. He would say most people in the East tend to live by, by this story, which is I'm part of this community, I'm embedded uh, within a community, and if I fail my community, if I fail my family, if I fail my uh, village, if I fail my, my people, then my life is, is wrecked. I don't, I, I'm not worth anything anymore. Uh, he's, of course, using these as, as shorthand. And I think to some degree, both of those stories tend to show up in, in all of our lives, different emphases in different places and different cultures and with, with different people. But to some degree, we're defined by, by both of those things. More importantly, though, I would argue as a Christian, everybody's defined by that, not Aristotle or, or Confucius, but that Adam and Eve story uh, of what it means to be uh, created in the image of God. And so God created us with vocation, with calling, subdue the earth, take dominion over it, cultivate it, uh, is, the, is the message that God gives to, to Adam and Eve, and flourish, 
Go, go out forward and fill the earth. We, we all have that sense of, of calling and that sense of, of vocation. We express it in different ways. And we all eventually recognize that that calling is frustrated. So when God says to Adam, you will bring bread from the earth, but you will do so with the earth fighting you with thorns and thistles. Uh, you you will give birth to the next generation and and cultivate and nurture the next generation, but you will do so with the pains uh, that come with with childbirth and then the the pains of that that snake striking at the heel of your child. We we have that sense of frustration uh, that is is present there. We all realize that the things that in my teens and 20s and maybe early 30s that were all possibility for me. And so no matter how bad my life is, if you're, if you're living, a, if you're living a, a really rough life right now as a teenager, uh, you're going to be able to say to yourself, this isn't going to be this way forever. It's going to get better. And, it, and let me just say to you, teenagers, it will. It, it will get better than than that. When you're twenties, uh, even if you're you're really frustrated with your love life or you're frustrated with your work life, you've got all of this possibility in front of you, and you think, well, things can get better. But there comes a point where you start to realize, wait a minute, time's running out, and I don't think it's going to get any better with my love life or with my uh, work life or, or with whatever goals that I have, have set for myself or have been set for me uh, by my culture or by my family or by my church or, or, or whomever. Uh, that's a very real thing. I also think that added to that, there is often a sense of regret that shows up in, in people's lives. People have a sense of, a sense of when they start paying attention and start looking back on their lives, there often seems to be an accumulation of things that that leave a sense of of shame or of guilt. So if you're in the you're in the sort of hormonal whirlwind of adolescence or your early twenties, it's kind of easy to fool yourself into thinking the things that I'm I'm doing right now aren't going to matter. They're not uh, permanent. I'm not going to think about them because I'm going to distract myself with with something else. But but that doesn't hold. Eventually we start we start thinking about these things and there is a sense of often a, a burden of regret. And so um, I think all the time of um, one of my favorite poets, Cheshwa Milos, who wrote a sort of a series of 12 things that he, that he learned from someone in his, in his life. And number 12 is the one that stays with me all the time. And it's this, he says that he has learned that in our lives, we should not succumb to despair because of our errors and our sins for the past is never closed down and receives the meaning we give to it by our subsequent acts. That's a really, really hard thing to believe, even if you, even if you know it cognitively, uh, to actually feel that. So a lot of times when people will either say, I'm going through a, a midlife crisis, or when you can look at them objectively and say, wait a minute, I think this person is going through a midlife crisis. What's at the root of that? Now, here's why I want to talk to you 20-year-olds right now and to you 32-year-olds right now and tell you to pay attention to this right now and start preparing and cultivating for it is because every single week just about, 
I'm hearing about somebody in, in my orbit, Christian, often pastors or church planners or, or missionaries or others, who extraordinarily gifted uh, and doing great things for the kingdom uh, all through their 20s and all through their 30s. And then somewhere in the late 30s, uh, early 40s, mid 40s, they hit a wall. And you'll see it show up in, in all kinds of different ways. Uh, you'll have people who will just be burned out and exhausted and say, I've, I've had it with, with ministry uh, and, and walk away. Uh, even if that ministry is, whether that ministry is vocational, whether it's service in a church. I've seen other people who have sabotaged their entire lives with uh, immoral behavior or with uh, substance abuse or with, with all, all sorts of, of things going on in their lives. And you look at it and you say, why in the world would you risk everything that you've built with your your ministry or your marriage or your, your kids or your, your reputation or uh, all of those? Why would you risk all of that for this that, that is nothing? And often what I find, if you really spend time with, with people, what I find is that often what was happening was itself a kind of suicide. People weren't ending their lives, but they were, they were ending their, their calling that they couldn't escape and that they believed was, was crushing them. And this was the way they could do it. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a conscious sort of decision, but it's, it's what was happening. That's why often uh, I will hear people in this situation say, well, I was, I was trying to get caught in alcoholism or affairs or whatever uh, the, the situation is. Well, why is that? I think it comes down to really the two fundamental questions of what it means to, to live out a life, and that's identity and inheritance. If you listen to me for very long or, or read anything that I've written, then you'll notice these two things show up all the time because I think they're, they're critically important to our understanding of ourselves. Who am I? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be loved by God? What does it mean to have uh, an identity that is hidden in Christ? Colossians 3, and then inheritance. Uh, what actually am I living for? Well, what actually does it mean to live a, a good and successful life? And so when those two things are confused, then often what I find are, uh, are, are situations where sometimes even really good things can end up being crushing and sometimes even demonic so I've known, for instance, men who will talk a, a great deal about being providers and protectors uh, for, for their families. Good. Uh, I think that's, ex that's exactly right. I want to encourage that. Provide for your family. Protect your family. But these days, I'm, I'm always listening when, when someone talks about that to see whether or not that is someone who is binding up his entire identity in uh, being breadwinner, to use the, the cultural term, or being, being that, that strong fatherly presence uh, in, in a home. Even that very good thing can, can be used as a weapon uh, against someone. I will often hear uh, women 
who are talking to me about being committed to discipling other uh, people within the church or committed to the, the cultivation of their, of their families. Again, really, really good. But I want to listen and to see whether or not this woman has confused herself with her gift and whether she's confused her, her future her inheritance with her success. And I think that that happens often with both men and women as they start to look around and they they see other people and they start to say, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm falling behind because I'm just not as good a mom as she is or I'm not as good a dad as he is, or I don't have the sort of marriage that they seem to have, or I don't, I don't uh, seem to have the sort of success in my work as this person has, or I don't have the same kind of fruit in my ministry as that person has. And in reality, if you think about it, that sort of, that sort of comparison and internal doubt rooted in envy, something the scripture uh, condemns, is, is just an identity confusion and an inheritance confusion. There is always going to be somebody who is a better evangelist than you are, or teacher than you are, or father than you are, or mother than you are, husband or wife, or whatever the, the specific calling that you're, you're thinking of right now, someone is always going to be better at it. And uh, not only that, you don't even know uh, people's real stories, usually, unless you're seeing them internally. You're only seeing what, what's being displayed and what's being presented. That can lead, when you combine it with those other factors that we were talking about uh, earlier, and with a self that hasn't been protected by gospel definition and gospel hope, that can lead to a really, really dangerous uh, sort of a situation. So why you need to prepare for this now and why you need to prepare to prepare others for this now is really similar to puberty. And I'm the dad of five sons, had to have the get ready for puberty uh, conversation. I don't know uh, how many times so far. And uh, what I try to do there is to say, hey, these things are going to happen to you. Don't freak out. Know ahead of time, I'm telling you, these are the changes that your body's going to have, and these are the changes that you're going to have emotionally. These are the sorts of sort of rocky things that you're going to have to go through. The reason for it is to launch you out into something that God has designed uh, to be to be really good. That's what it is. So one of my sons, one time I was talking about this, said, well, when does it end? Uh, We were talking specifically about uh, sexual uh, attraction, those sorts of issues. He said, look, when does it end? And my response was, well, I'll let you know Uh, because it it really doesn't end. And and he teared up and said, are you kidding? It doesn't end? Like, yeah, it, it doesn't end in that way, but it ends in the way you're experiencing right now. You're not going to always be going through these mood swings and pimple outbreaks and and all of of those sorts of of things. You need to prepare them ahead of time. I think the same thing is true for these other uh, stages of life because in some way or the other, we all live out our own personal book of Ecclesiastes. Now, think of what Ecclesiastes does. Is it the preacher there is is looking at his life and he says, "I, I thought that life consisted in wisdom and knowledge and then I was exhausted by that. Doesn't 
doesn't bring meaning. It's vanity. Thought it was pleasure-seeking. It's not that. Thought it was wealth. Thought it was power. Thought it was all of those things. And all of those things disappoint me. And ultimately, we're all dead like a dog. I mean, that's, that's, you could sum up the, the book of Ecclesiastes that way. So is that a crisis? Yeah, that's a crisis uh, in, in, the same way that, uh, in the same way that it's a, a turning point. But Ecclesiastes doesn't end that way. The Ecclesiastes says, so remember your creator. And, and remember your creator when in the days when you are young, prepare yourself ahead of time for the fact that your idols are going to disappoint you. At some point in your life, whether it happens when you're uh, 40 or 50 or or whether it it happens uh, much, much later on, prepare yourself for how am I going to go through a time when, when these things that are idols in my life that I don't even recognize as idols start to disappoint me. I had a church that was looking at a, a potential pastor and the person on the pastor search committee uh, was was talking to me because I was a recommendation for this person. And he said, now, he hit a very difficult time in his life and said that he was exhausted and he was tapped out and he, he, he had to make all sorts of adjustments uh, in his life. Should we be worried about that? And I said, that's the very reason why you ought to call that guy as your pastor, because he didn't hit that point of disappointment or exhaustion or, or, or whatever and and seek out affairs or uh, substance abuse or or cynicism and, and hardening instead he he really used it as a crisis and he didn't waste that crisis he said let me let me go back to first principles and figure out who God is to me let me figure out who I am in terms of the good news of the gospel and let me reorient and correct my life that's what discipleship is. And so this sort of um, this sort of crisis, if we mean turning point, may be really quiet for you. And you know, it, it, it is for me. I don't have a, I never had a really dramatic sense of, oh well, my my life is completely falling apart here. It's just more of a sense of, wait a minute, what's happening here? That may be because. I have a friend who was talking about all of these these guys just doing really crazy, uh, risky things. And his wife asked him, well, what are they, why are they doing this? And he said, well, I think they're hitting midlife and they want to sort of prove I've still got it. And she said, well, are you going to do that? And he said, I don't think so because I never had it. I was never, I was never, uh, you know, being pursued by uh, by women or you know, whatever the the issue was. I think there's a sense in which um, there's a sense in which that can be a blessing to to realize uh, you you you're not you're not looking nostalgically back at at something in the past if that's the case for you. But it is going to be the case that you are going to have a time when you're doing all of the things that you're supposed to be doing and you're going to hit some point of a turning point and you start to realize some things. And what I realized at that point was a number of things. One of them was, I'm just not going to be everybody that people need me to be. God's given me a certain calling. God's given me certain responsibilities and that's what I have to do. And I, I can't be everything to everybody. And secondly, to realize people are crazy. People are crazy. We, we assume when we're very young that the people that are grown-ups are all grown up. 
and mature and reasonable and rational and eventually we're going to get there. They're not. You end up with uh, a situation where people, the older they get, are often in the middle of the very same sorts of things that they were in the middle of as a teenager or 20-something or 30-something, and they're just as internally unsure of what's going on. They just know how to perform and how to act often. So you have to learn those things and then also know where your vulnerabilities are. And my vulnerability that I learned as I kind of came through that, that middle of life's passage was that no matter how theologically orthodox I am, at root, I'm basically a Pelagian. I, I, I basically assume, un, unless I'm constantly fighting it with the gospel and with repentance, that I have to perform, I have to be the best at fill in the blank. And if I'm not, that God is, is angry with me. And what I had to learn at that point was that I spent all of my ministry up to that point on the Bible tells me so. And that's good and true, and I need to continue that. But I need to spend more time with Jesus loves me. Not just at the theological level, but at the, the visceral level in order to uh, bring about peace. And so if you look and you see people, sometimes people that you've even admired uh, a lot, who as they, as they age become trapped with carnality and juvenility and uh, anger or, or whatever. Look at that, have compassion. Don't have judgment, have compassion, but say, I don't want that to happen to me. And prepare yourself so that as you do age, you're able to learn the, the lessons of the stories of your life as you look backwards, so that you're able to say, ah, there it is. Okay, yeah, I recognize that. I've seen that before. I've seen that in my life before. I've seen that other people before. I I recognize and I know what this is. And then prepare people for those changes in life. That's that's what Jesus does. Uh, He tells the disciples ahead of time, telling you ahead of time, we're going to Jerusalem. And I'm, I'm going to the cross. I'm telling you ahead of time that you're going to have persecution and the world is going to, to hate you so that you will know that when that happens, that I haven't abandoned you. Prepare yourself now to say, I may reach a turning point. I may reach a really difficult time. I'm not going to uh, make any rash decisions that time. I'm not going to give up hope at that time. I'm going to use this as a positive time to recognize I am not whatever my gifts are. I am not whatever my expectations are. And when your idols start to disappoint you, rejoice. That is God showing you where they are, not to crush you, but to welcome you into a fuller experience of Him and of grace. Prepare yourself for midlife if you're not there yet. And if you're past it, prepare somebody else and teach them Jesus loves you. This I know. That's Russell Moore in my 40s, but not really in midlife because we have trillions and trillions and trillions of years yet to go.